Welcome to Homegrown History with Limestone County archivist Rebecca Davis and longtime Athens, Alabama native Richard Martin. Each episode, Richard and Rebecca bring to life some of the famous and infamous stories etched in Limestone County's rich history. Hello and welcome back to Homegrown History, your Limestone County History podcast. I'm Rebecca Davis, archivist at the Limestone County Archives in Athens, Alabama, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Richard Martin, the oldest one here. That's right, and we are here again today with another wonderful guest. They're very excited to introduce to you. Many of you here in Limestone County probably know Lakin Boyd because he's a good old hometown boy too, aren't you, Lakin? I am that indeed. Yes, and um, he's got his local Athens cred. He was born in Powers Hospital on the corner of Pryor and Jefferson Streets in Athens. He grew up off of West Washington Street next to a reformatted old log cabin that Miss Etta Hine live in. And we want you to tell us about that here in just a little bit. But also, Lakin is a retired professor of art history. He taught for 37 years at both the University of Alabama at Huntsville and Alabama A&M University. He's a board member of the Limestone County Historical Society. And he is a history nut like us and has done a lot of research on antebellum and uh, other older homes of limestone county and that's what he's here to talk to us about today is just some of the things he has learned about um, local houses that were built before the civil war some of the story we'll talk a little bit about some of the stories surrounding those homes and the architecture and, and all as well so with that welcome lakin we're glad you're here today thank you rebecca and i would like to thank both you and april for all the work you do at the archives, well, thank which you. I use extensively. Yes, April Davis is the assistant archivist. Let me give her a shout out because, yes, Lakin is a regular at the Limestone County Archives, and he does a lot of research, so thank you. Uh, I was born in Powers Hospital, delivered by Dr. Powers. Uh, his wife, Mabel, was a distant cousin of my mother's. Okay. And uh, I first lived on Market Street near the Houston Library, mm-hmm. and uh, that's where I first learned to read and love books. Ah, and we'll talk a little bit more about that home as the, as the conversation progresses. And in 1957, my father built a house on Washington Street next door to Miss Etta Hine. Mm-hmm. And Miss Etta uh, lived in a marvelous house for a child. Uh, two-story log cabin that Uh, had been aggrandized in the 1840s or 50s with mm -hmm. clapboards and given a kind of Greek revival facade. Is that where the wellness center is? That is. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I know we were discussing this beforehand. She was actually the kinfolk of Ernest Hine, the mayor who who Hine Street is named for. Right, right. That's right. all part of that same family. Right, and the house was filled with wonderful antiques and uh, books and old newspapers. And Miss Etta and I used to look for mini balls down at the fairgrounds, which was directly behind her house. Right, about where the DHR and, and the EMA is now, right? Right, mm-hmm. right. So uh, I attribute that to my love of old houses, and uh, I kind of felt like I grew up in Mayberry uh, mm-hmm. in that era, living in Athens. And we traveled around on our bicycles all over town. And sure. 
So uh, it was a wonderful town to grow up in. Now, you're slightly younger than Richard. He's still the oldest one here, uh, yeah. right? Uh, that's true. <laughs> I was born in 46. Oh, okay. All right. I'm born 39. So you're still the oldest one here. But now y'all were both riding your bikes around town right. about the same time, weren't you? That's right. <laughs> true. Right. Now, do you remember Richard going up there and looking for mini balls, or did you know anything about that back I then? knew about Ed Hines house because uh, it had holes in the side of the house, and that was through mini balls. Yeah, yes, and there was a cannon ball embedded in one of the logs and she had left the board off that section of the log house so you could see the cannon oh that's so cool yeah because that was just well literally a stone's throw or a mini ball's throw from where the battle of athens took place wasn't it it was wow so it sounds like you um benefited a lot from her wisdom and learning about some of the history in the older homes here in athens huh well that's true she took me or at least lighten that spark right exactly but she took me to meet miss mary mason and uh, she knew all the old ladies that lived in those homes at that time well i went to miss mary mason's home barefooted and the kitchen was a dirt floor Uh, and i thought that that was the coolest thing in the world (laughs) and miss mary mason's home is the baby mason home that is still there on baby street today yeah and I know we were going to talk a little bit about some of the sources that you have for all of this information, but I know one of them was Miss Mary Mason's scrapbook. We actually have the original of her scrapbook there at the Limestone County Archives, but also a copy that the Limestone County Historical Society has published. And it is just chock full of information about homes and the people who live there. And she was the original turn of the century of the 20th century limestone county historian wasn't she yes, she was and that i've used that book extensively right right well let's get started or do you want to start a little bit with just in general how you learn about these houses and understand about their architecture and their date i know at the archives one of the most common questions we get about homes is how old is it? When was it built? And it's also one of the hardest ones to answer because our records typically follow the land, not the structure. And so you can kind of zero in it, but usually there's not anything. So tell us a little bit about how you do your research and some of the things you found. Well, uh, I generally trace the deeds to find out who bought the land, assuming if there was a house built on the land, uh, the original owner built it, but that's mm-hmm. not always the case, of course. But There were speculators that had come through, and they knew where the best land in the county was. And, of course, that was down near the Tennessee River in Mm -hmm. the Mooresville area. And uh, rich planters from primarily Virginia and Georgia came and bought that land first. And then, uh, of course, there were the kind of yeoman farmers that came before the land was even sold, Mm -hmm. of course, in 1807-8 were driven off by the soldiers at Fort Hampton. But those people came back and bought land. But the planters were primarily built in the southern part of the county and then uh, had houses in Athens. But there are, I would say, two distinct periods of building. One is early and uh, examples would be the brick houses at Cambridge that were built by okay. William Parham. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, the, the Bibb house at Belmino, that's very early. Right. Still the 
probably the grandest early house in the county. So when you talk about the brick houses at Cambridge, are there any of those that are still standing today? There are only two left, and one is Cotton Hill, which has been beautifully restored. Yes. And the other one is the Gamble House that I understand is recently sold. Mm -hmm. But from my perspective, the, the Gamble House is probably the most important extant house in the county because it exhibits certain traits that are unique. Tell uh, us a little bit about that house, if you don't mind getting right into it. Well, the uh, the Gamble House was originally constructed as a two-story brick house with a full basement. It's an example of the federal style, built mm-hmm. at the end of the federal period. What, what period is federal period? Well, roughly uh, 1800 to about 1840, okay. even later in some parts of the the state. But uh, it displays the characteristics of the federal style that were transported from Alabama uh, by early settlers uh, from southeast Virginia. Mm-hmm. And the house retains uh, the Georgian colonial form that has become traditional in the United States, or that had become traditional during the 18th century, essentially a rectangular box, two stories high and one or two rooms deep, with three or five symmetrical openings across the facade on each level. Mm -hmm. In the southern version, chimneys were usually located on the sides of the house, and the Gamble House has two massive chimneys that are really Mm -hmm. incredible. And uh, the plan for such houses often featured a central hallway with two or or four rooms per floor. Mm -hmm. And... uh, of course, the second floor echoed the first floor arrangement. Sure. But the Gamble House is unique in that it doesn't have a stairway. It has two front doors. And if you took the porch that's on the house off today and put proper porches back, it would look like something in Williamsburg. Okay. And it also has the most beautiful uh, brick cornice of any house that has survived in North Alabama, I think. And they're beautiful. They're beautiful. <laughs> Well, and, and um, it used to be way out in the country. Now it's right there in the middle of the what's becoming the big, biggest road in the county, and it's on Huntsville Brown's Ferry Road. Right, and, I, and I'm terrified that it's going to be demolished. I know. Well, and it's, you know, it has survived a lot, hasn't it? It survived the Civil War. It, it survived tornadoes. Folks may recognize the house as being the home that had that beautiful tree-lined driveway right up until 2011, and it took out nearly all of those trees. The cedar trees were taken out. And the house was built by a man named Joseph Johnson, and uh, he lived there until he moved to Mississippi. It's just a a very early house. I think it could date from about 1820. Okay, so it's one of the oldest um, surviving homes. Mm -hmm. Well, and I have to tell a little story about the Gamble House, if y'all indulge me, because back... Uh, many years ago when I was working at the News Courier and I did a, a series of articles about haunted homes. Now, whether or not you believe in ghosts, we'll leave that up for debate. But so that one was known to be haunted and Gerald Gamble was living there at the time. And I called him. He's like, sure, come on down. I'll tell you about stories. And so he told me about seeing Foxfire come up out of the cemetery, you know, the family cemetery there by there. And he talked about um, how when he and his brother were living there by themselves, there would be times that they would hear footsteps come up the stairway. So there was a stairway at that time, and they would raise it up and go, all right, I got to go to work in the morning. Leave me alone. And then the footsteps would stop. But the one that got me is he said, 
that, you know, at least a hundred more years ago, there was a couple of guys that um, got into some sort of duel and were, you know, shooting at each other and came running right through the middle of the house, what would have been like a dog trot type thing. And um, one of them shot the other, killed him, but the bullet ricocheted off the wall and went through the transom glass that was over the hallway. And he said when he was growing up, because he grew up in that house, about once a year, for no apparent reason, that glass would just shatter until finally his dad got sick of it and put bulletproof glass in the transom and it never shattered again. <laughs> so he was in the middle of telling me those stories and we're in the house and it's real quiet and all of a sudden one of those old, old wall phones goes bring and I thought I was going to jump out of my skin. <laughs> But it's it is it's a it was a beautiful home. Of course, that's been twenty years or more. Well, now. he told me the same story. And uh, another interesting thing about the house is that, as I said, there's no central hall, and there are reverse staircases. And upstairs, there's no door connecting the two rooms upstairs. Oh, so, really? Uh, one wonders whether it, one side was for the boys, the other side was for the girls, <laughs> or whether it was an early duplex. <laughs> No Jack and Jill bathroom back then, huh? No, no. Uh, but the builder is believed to have been a man named William Parham, mm-hmm. and he built four brick houses in that area, as we mentioned. And uh, the other one that's still standing is Cotton Hill. Mm-hmm. I've seen several weddings at Cotton Hill in the past few years, mm-hmm. and it's a, you're right, it has been very beautifully restored. What do you know about Cotton Hill? Well, Cotton Hill was the home of Luke Matthews, and it was built by Parham. And it also is a, an example of an early federal brick house, and the style, again, transported from Tidewater, Virginia. Quite frankly, uh, Cotton Hill is my favorite house in Limestone County. Why is that? Well, the house is completely intact uh, in the sense that The woodwork is there. The house is quite sophisticated. It has uh, arched transoms over the doors. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I said, the woodwork there is exceptional. The mantles especially. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of Parham's signature devices was something called the I-Dental and the mantle in the dining room is decorated with the I-dental and a beautiful sunburst. So, okay. What what does I-dental mean? What is that? Well, it's an architectural device, but it's a, a dental, uh, which is a type of molding. Okay. But it has a very distinctive I carved into okay. it. Okay. Okay. I got and you. So you see that rarely in, in Limestone County, but you see it in Parham's houses. It's also, you can see it in the Gamble House. And you can see it on the Houston house, which I have long suspected may have been built by Parham because the Houston house is a federal house mm-hmm. that was remodeled in the 1840s and turned into the, quote, Greek Revival type right. house that it is today. So it originally did not. The Houston home was George Houston's home. There on It's now the Houston Library on the corner of Houston and Market Street. Correct. And it has the big... Greek Revival columns, white columns. Four square columns with a pediment, which was a, let's say, signature of Hiram Higgins. And uh, I think most of those houses of that type were built by Higgins. Okay. I want to get back to that. I do want to mention about the Cotton Hill and Gamble homes. Now, would those have been handmade bricks out of Alabama? Tell us a little bit about 
that because I know Hiram Higgins built the first brick home in Limestone County, which is long gone. It was in Cottonport, the Lucas House. Yes, and it was it was I think something like four hundred thousand handmade Four, bricks. That's what is told. Wow. But what is so distinctive about both uh, Mr. Gamble's house and Cotton Hill, the brickwork is extremely fine, and both houses have a water table, which is an unusual feature. Mm -hmm. Uh, Molded brick actually designed to shed water off the house down at the lower level. Mm -hmm. And uh, the brickwork, as I said, is extremely fine, and it was once penciled. And what that means is that a white lime was applied to the mortar so that the lines of mortar stood out vividly. Okay. So it okay. was a, a decorative element that you see. Mm. And uh, also a, another aspect of the brickwork is that it was laid in Flemish bond. What does that mean? Well, it's... it's you're going to have to explain all of these things. I'm learning so much. <laughs> well, it's a... Dis- and I should know these things. My granddaddy was yeah. a brick mason. <laughs> yeah. It's a distinctive pattern uh, of laying brick. You have one horizontal and one vertical. Okay. Uh, so it creates a kind of special pattern. I'll have to pay closer attention to the walls of these houses whenever I go by. So, uh, as I said, the water table is very special to me because... Uh, it's a holdover from the Georgian tradition and okay. just something you don't see often. Right, right, exactly. Well, tell us a little bit about Hiram Higgins and, and also about the Houston home. Well, the, the Houston home, as I said, was remodeled in the 1840s, I think, by Hiram Higgins, but I don't think he was the original builder. The, mm-hmm. the house originally was a federal house, and it could have been built by Parham because mm-hmm. You see uh, the use of I-dentals there, mm-hmm. and uh, actually I-dentals were used on the outside of the house as trim work near the roof line. Mm-hmm. So I find things like that interesting. Yeah, before we get more into the Houston home, like I said, one of the hardest questions that we have to answer at the archives is, how old is my house? And you can determine a little bit from the deeds and from the tax records and even from sometimes from newspaper records. We have, I know the Faye Axford's decade books really help with that, with research in the newspapers. But what are some things, um, maybe some details that you use to help determine when a house was built, who might have built it? What are some things as a, as just as in studying that architecture and history that help determine the age of a house? Well, first thing would be the style. But um, I look at deeds, and mm-hmm. in the case of the most recent article that I've done for the Legacy. Uh, That's the Limestone that, Legacy, the Historical Society's publication. Publication. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go back and trace the land records, and John McKinley bought 163 acres where the prior house stands. Okay. That was, I think, a quarter section. Mm-hmm. And he bought this in February of 1818. Okay. And uh, McKinley was from Kentucky. He moved to Huntsville. He established a legal practice there and actively engaged in land speculation. And McKinley was the first Alabama resident to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. He was one of the main founders of Florence, Alabama, and he donated the land where Athens College was built. 
Wow. So he wasn't here long, but he made a big impact. He made a big impact. But and you're talking about where the prior house is? So well, I'm talking about the prior house that's presently being restored. Okay, so on the corner of Prior and Jefferson Streets Jefferson, in Athens, yeah. which is now almost downtown, but back then it was kind of it way was, out in the country, wasn't it? It was, <laughs> and uh, McKinley sold it to James K. Murrah uh, in 1836, and uh, he and his wife, I think, built the first house on the property, and uh, his wife was Sarah Ann Maples, and then they moved to Memphis and sold the property to John Maples, who was his wife's brother. Mm-hmm. And then John Maples lived there until uh, 1844, and then he sold the house to Robert Livingston Clark. Mm-hmm. And Clark and his wife remodeled the house again, turned it into a Greek revival house, and interestingly mm. enough, the front porch of their house is now the back porch of the prior house. Oh. So they moved the original front porch uh, of the Greek Revival House to the back. And okay. then uh, Luke Pryor bought the property from the Clarks in 1854, I believe. And mm-hmm. he did not extensively remodel the house until 1868. Right, because he was a little busy. (laughs) He was very busy. He was a, Luke Pryor was a legislator, and that was the year before he was elected to the legislature Mm -hmm. in 1855, and he was a pretty prominent and powerful man, and of course, in in that time, you also had the war going on, and so I'm sure it it halted any remodeling efforts, didn't it? It did, and uh, in 1868, he remodeled the house in the Italianate style. Right. So that's why it's got, if you go and you want to drive by and look and see, it's got the curved arches as opposed to the columns, Greek Revival columns like so many do. Which, by the way, that brings to mind, if anybody is interested in taking a little driving tour or walking tour of any of these, the tourism office, the visitor center down there by the duck pond at Big Spring, does have some riding tour. The Antebellum Trail. Yeah, go ahead, tell them. It has a CD and it plugs it in and it tells you where to start and where to end. Right, and there's brochures that go along with it too. So if anybody is interested in learning more and actually taking a look at these, those are available. I did want to mention a few things about Pryor while we're talking about his house, because to me, he was just a really interesting character, and he loved the railroad, and that was his big fight. As soon as he got into the legislature, he and that's part of the reason why he didn't have time to remodel is because he was fighting to get the railroad to come through Limestone County, and he wanted it. If you've ever gotten stopped by the train trying to get from one side of town to the other, you can blame Luke Pryor because it was supposed to go out where 31 is now, but he wanted it close to his house. He wanted to be able to walk down to the railroad, and so he and um, Hobbs, Thomas Hobbs, and some others successfully fought over a governor's veto to get a $200,000 tax bill to get the railroad to come through Limestone County. And, I mean, he was such a friend of the railroad. The first train came through was named Luke Pryor. The railroad company let him borrow a big engine light to light up the street from his home to the square when his daughter Memory got married. But my favorite is the story about his mama, and this will bring us to Haywood Jones, too, who's another home that I know we wanted to talk about. 
1859, uh, his buddy Haywood Jones came to him and said, hey, can you sell me one of those lots between your house and the railroad? He's like, sure, man. You know, so he sells the deed. Well, by that time, his mama was living with him. And he was a very powerful man at this time. But he came home. He said, hey, mama, I sold that land to my buddy Haywood. She goes, oh. You mean I won't be able to sit on the porch and watch the trains go by anymore? And he's like, yes, sorry, Mama. He's going to put a house there. She's like, oh, no, no. Tell him that ain't going to happen. And she had to go back the next day and say, sorry, Mama said I can't sell the land. And Haywood sold it back to him, didn't he? He did. He did indeed. (laughs) So Um, don't matter how powerful you are, you better listen to your Mama, right? (laughs) Right, right. Well, the last prior to live in the house was Frances Snow prior, and Mm -hmm. she died in 1935. And the house was sold in 39 to Van Gilbert. A lot of people mm-hmm. remember him. And he converted it into the Julian Apartments in 1940. Right. And so the house literally was gutted. Mm-hmm. And uh, fortunately, the house has been bought by Rennie and Greg Hodges. Yes. And they are in the process of restoring the house. Yeah. So uh, it, it's just wonderful that, that that house will be saved. Absolutely. They have come to the archives to find information and photos. And a lot of what they have been able to use, too, are Library of Congress photos that were taken in the 1930s, haven't they? To try to the get the Habs photographs. Yes. yes. It's called mm-hmm. Historic American Building Survey. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these homes that we're talking about today do have photos on that um, survey and those are available through the library of congress i think it's loc.gov or you can just do search a search for historic american building survey and um, search by county and so if anybody's interested in looking at some historic photos of these homes that are available to the public you can do that yeah, I use those photos in my articles. Right. Well, they're excellent photos. And, and especially, you know, they, they're a little bit closer to the time that the houses were built. They can help you get a little bit closer to original. They also uh, include, some of them include architectural plans of the houses. Oh, yeah. And that is enabling Greg and Rennie to reconstruct the house as it was. Wow, that's great. It's going to be exciting to see what they get done mm-hmm. with it. I know it's a big project. Absolutely. Well, I know we mentioned Haywood Jones, and you've done some research on that home. Tell us a little bit about that one. And this, for reference, it's the one that a lot of folks might now know is the um, Hatchet House that is on Clinton Street right next to Green's Radiator Service. Right. Well, um, Haywood Jones was one of the wealthiest planters in Limestone County in 1860. He owned almost 3,000 acres of land and over 180 slaves. Wow. And uh, he has an interesting history. Uh, His grandfather was a revolutionary captain who served with Washington and, in fact, was a cousin of Martha Washington. Wow. And his father was John Nelson Spotswood, Jones, uh, who owned Druid's Grove Plantation at Greenbrier. And, okay. And the cemetery is still there. And that's where Haywood Jones is buried. He mm-hmm. died in 1866. But uh, he started to build this house in 1859. Mm-hmm. He already owned four lots on Clinton Street when he, he bought the lots from Luke Pryor. Mm-hmm. Apparently, he wanted it to be near Luke Pryor, but that didn't work out. Mm-hmm. So he went back to the four lots that he had bought previously from Madison Thompson, who was Mm -hmm. a merchant here in Athens. And I think the house was constructed, or should I say started, in late 1859, uh, 1860. And um, the house is magnificent. It's a grand, or it was 
are going to be built as Grand Italianate House. Mm-hmm. And um, we have the earliest known photograph of the house, and it had a totally different porch. And it had the Belvedere or cupola. And uh, it, of course, looked very Italianate compared to what it looks like now. Sure. But mm-hmm. uh, around 1900, Dr. Theo Westmoreland put a large square porch uh, mm-hmm. replace the Italianate porch so the style looks a little different and the house has been changed. Uh, the cupola or Belvedere was removed in the 1950s, I think. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, sometimes I look at the old pictures that we have at the archives of different homes and then I forget that, oh yeah, in reality it doesn't have that anymore. <laughs> so, and then it was sold to Joshua Coleman mm-hmm. in 1865 he was a, a medical doctor, and yes. they were related to the Jones family through marriage. And then, I think it was in 1896, the house was sold to Dr. Theo mm-hmm. Westmoreland. And Westmoreland was a bit of a character himself, wasn't he? He was indeed. He owned what was, well, it basically became Limestone Drug. And he was really one of the most powerful men in town around the turn of the century as well. I know we have some pictures of the archives of him on the porch of that house back around that time. Yeah, he took very good care of the house, and Mm -hmm. the house probably was at its best during his tenure. Then in the 1920s, late 20s after he died, the house was sold to a Dr. Booth uh, Mm -hmm. in Hartzell. I don't think he and his wife, Pearl, ever lived in the house. Uh, Mm -hmm. kind of turned it into a rental property. And then the house was bought by a Miss Clark, whose sister married Carl Hatchett. And then when she died, the house was inherited by Carl's niece, Julia Hatchett. Yes. And when Julia died, she left it to Carl Hatchett III, and he's the present owner of the house. Yes, and I don't think the Hatchett family would mind because they've come to talk to me about this. The interesting thing about Julia, she did not want to be told what to do. And so it's that house, if you look at the Beatty Historic District outline, even though that house clearly, I mean, it's on the National Register of Historic Places and everything, the outline of the district goes around that house because she did not want to be included. She did not want the historical commission to tell her what to do. And she had a sign out front, this is private property. (laughs) And so now that, you know, she has gone on, her family came to the archive saying, let's make sure that this is included. We want it recognized in National District. So as it turns out, nationally, it always has been, but it's just that locally, I I think she just didn't want the historical commission telling her what to do, (laughs) but it is. It's a historic home, and you had a story about that home that you were going to tell that you were looking at before about the Ohio Infantry, Richard. When um, Forrest came to take Athens, and they had the Battle of Athens in September of 64, uh, that house was used as a hospital for the Union Army. And uh, the morning before the battle, uh, the Confederates came in and one of the Union soldiers looked out the window and saw the Confederates. So he ran upstairs in one of the rooms and was hiding from them. And the doctor was taking care of some of the wounded soldiers. And then the Confederates came into the house. And so this Union soldier got scared and he climbed up in the chimney. (laughs) And he stayed in that chimney for almost uh, 
48 hours. Really? To hide from him. And the doctor sent some water to him once, twice. And then one of the Confederates came in that room and wanted to build a fire. And he says, no, you can't build a fire because we won't keep this room cold when we operate. So they didn't build the fire. So the man escaped from being captured. It was a Union doctor. And so when you ride by there, the back room upstairs in the left, there's a chimney. That's where that boy climbed up in it. Wow. Well, and that reminds me, I know earlier we were talking about the Houston home, and I wanted to circle back around to that because there's some interesting stories about that home as well. And, of course, that's where Alabama governor, George Houston, well, he was a governor, he was a senator, he was a very prominent man as well, where he lived. And I know you had mentioned it was one of those original federal buildings that was then renovated to look more Greek Revival as well, wasn't it? It was. It it has um, the original federal staircase, and it also, it was one of the houses that doesn't have a central hall. Oh, that's right. And Athens has a number of houses that have two front doors, which is a little bit different. Mm-hmm, that's right. Well, and Richard, I know you were talking about a story about George Houston's son, John, John that got into right. a little bit of scrape during the Civil War, didn't he? Yes. Uh, when Forrest, again, was here in 65 and having the Battle of Athens, John got excited being a 16-year-old boy. So his mama made him stay in his room. So he sneaked down in the basement, is my understanding, and looked out through the basement and watched the battle. And then all of a sudden, boom! <laughs> a bullet came through there and it scared him so he hit his head on the rafter there and, and he thought he'd been shot. shot. <laughs> well, as it turns out, that bullet lodged into the windowsill right above him. And so years later, he came back to the house, found the bullet lodged in the log, dug it out, and he kept it in his pocket until he died. I didn't know. That's yep. great. And another bullet shot through the secretary desk in the living room and lodged in the wall there, too. So that house did not go unscathed. I imagine not. But it was, I mean, it was right in between where the fort was, where, you know, Trinity High School was later built, and the downtown square and the Nifonia Fairgrounds where they were in camp. So, uh, yeah, it was just right in the middle of it all, wasn't it? True, true. And Houston was right in the middle of everything, too. You know, he... Houston, I've always thought was interesting. He was, I feel like he was kind of the George Wallace of his day. He knew how to read the political temperature of Alabama. And so he was a congressman and he was trying to stop the Civil War. Yes. And his roommate before Lincoln got elected was the vice president of the United States with Lincoln. Yes, that's right. uh, So he knew all those folks up there. Right. He was a unionist, but. When Alabama turned segregationist, he was the one who wrote up the papers for segregation. And then after the war, when he ran for governor, you know, he was the first Democrat governor elected after Reconstruction. And Alabama stayed yellow dog Democrat for another 100 plus years until Guy Hunt was elected. But, you know, by that time... You know, he may have been a unionist and all at first, but his part of his platform was two slogans, home rule and white supremacy. So, you know, he he kind of gave the people what they wanted, which was what Alabama wanted back then. Sounds like a lot of politicians today. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We what may- about down the street? That was another house. Right. I did want to mention one thing about the Houston home before we get beyond okay. that, and that's the scratches in the window. You want to tell about that, Lakin? 
that his daughter that she scratched with a diamond. You know what I'm talking about? Upstairs? I know, but you probably know more about that than I do. <laughs> so if you go to the Houston Library and you go upstairs, in the one of the front windows, as you look at the house, it's up and to your left. His daughter, Ella, Mary Ella, scratched her name and her cousin's names into the window with a diamond. And I know that when the um, Houston Library Board talked about, you know, it's been under major renovations. One of the things they were going to have to do, I believe, was remove that window. But they were going to save it in some way. So I hate to say I'm not up to date on what they've done with that. But that's been there for, you know, 120, 130 years uh, where she scratched her name with a diamond. And she's the one, she never married, never had any descendants, and she's the last Houston to live in that house. And then she gave it to the city of Athens in the mid-1900s to use as a library and museum. She's the reason that Athens has that as a library. Well, I spent many hours in that library. Because you grew up right behind there, right? I lived out right down the street, and, and that was a refuge for me. And I attribute my love of reading to that library because... Mm-hmm. There was a bay window on the north side, and I used to sit in that bay window, and uh, it had a window seat and oh, read. Oh, and so, wow. And uh, another set of books I found there, Stoddart's Lectures, and that was a set of travel books. I think one of the first set of travel books published with photographs, oh. and I was absolutely intrigued, I remember, by Egypt and the Holy Land. So, so did you ever get to travel there? after? Beginning? Absolutely. So that started that lifelong love, That huh? started the travel love. Oh, that's neat. Well, now, Richard, I know you were mentioning the house down the street. Tell us what right. you're talking about. Well, it's the, called the Martin Malone Johnson home, mm-hmm. and it's... Apparently, the oldest building house standing is what we think. Is that right? We think it's the oldest extent house in Athens. Okay. And I have been from the basement to the attic, and uh, it's a very interesting house. It was remodeled in 1915, I believe, and the character is totally changed now, but the chimneys are still in the same place, and you can actually, in a closet upstairs, see some of the shingles that were on the old house. Oh, with really? Wooden shingles with square nails. So uh, then uh, the floor is now covered with the narrow oak flooring that was so popular around the turn of the last century. Wow. And, uh, but in the basement, you can see the original heart pine flooring and the floor joists are only finished on one side. They're heart pine, and there's bark on the bottom of them. Oh, that's neat. Well, and if you're wanting to look at this, it's on Houston Street, just north of where Hobbs Street ends. 207 North Houston Street. Right, right. You know. I lived there shortly. Yeah. After I married. Yeah. I married one of the descendants. Yes. And um, it's surrounded by Malone Circle, because at one time that was all Malone land. And so the first... No, it wasn't the first person to live there, but... Oh, no, he was. Joshua Lanier Martin yeah, Martin, wasn't he? Was. he, the one he I think he it? built the house. He built the house. Like, around 1820. And Martin was another governor from Alabama, from Athens. And he was the 12th governor of Alabama. He only served one two-year term. But he never lost an election. He he was, uh, you know, ran for Congress as well. Yeah. And then um, after him was the Malone family. And then the Johnson family. And let, let's tell a little bit about that. And then I think... 
we'll kind of wrap up our talk about this first section of homes in Athens and come back for a second part, if you're willing to stick around, Lakin. Certainly. So tell us what you know about George Johnson, who was one of the last ones to well, live there, and his connection to Sin City. Right. Um, Nancy, one of the daughters, inherited the house from the Malones, and she was married to George Johnson, who was the county solicitor and then became the state solicitor for Limestone, Morgan, Lawrence, and Coleman County. And he had two daughters, Sarah Mack, three three daughters, Alice Kelly and Nan, and they lost a daughter later on. But anyway, they lived in that house, and I dated Sarah Mack through the times. And Mr. Johnson was a good friend of Albert Patterson. And Albert Patterson was running for Attorney General of Alabama from Phoenix City. And the Phoenix City boys saw the way he was going to get elected and murdered him after mm-hmm. he got elected. So, yeah, because Phoenix City was a hotbed of sin if, back then, wasn't it? <laughs> if they elected up to General Patton, he would have blown it off the map. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, George was called in by Governor Person to come down and help clean up that city, and he tried 10,000 cases. Wow. That's what he did. So it and was, it is. The Phoenix is not what it used to be. It's no, full it's of <laughs> a little bit of and everything. And when we, Sarah Mack and I, Dave, we'd always have to tell them where we were going, and we had to be in by 1030. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> had to that, get back to that house, huh? That's right. <laughs> and I used to go to birthday parties there. Oh, and, did you? Yeah, and uh, Nan and Sarah Mack and that's Alice good. Kelly's mother, uh, Nancy, her father was... Mayor of Athens. Yes, yes. And okay. he was the one that Which mayor? Re- remodeled the house. He was, he was a big farmer, too. Okay. Yeah, because that whole area, what is now Malone Circle, and and actually on back to about the hospital, Athens Thompson Hospital, all used to be part of the land that went with that home, didn't it? Was it was cotton fields. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Houston home as well. It all used to be lots of acreage. Well, with that, let's wrap up the first part of this conversation. And um, you, we appreciate everybody for listening, and especially you, Lakin, for coming. And, I mean, I'm just sitting on the edge of my seat just listening to all these stories about these Amen. homes. And, and uh, it makes me want to drive. Well, it makes me want to walk by. <laughs> Go down to the tourism office yes. and get that antebellum trail with a CD and a map, and yes. you can see all this. Absolutely, absolutely. Or, you know, come to the archives. I did want to mention a couple things about the sources before we sign off, is that if anybody's interested in these copies of the Limestone Legacy, they can join the Limestone County Historical Society for $15 a year, I believe that's right. That's individual membership. Yes, and that will automatically subscribe you to the Legacy. Four and legacies a year. Right, or if you want to look at back issues, we have those at the Limestone mm-hmm. County Archives. We also have Mary Mason's scrapbook. The Lure and the Lore by Faye Axford is just the Bible of Antebellum Homes of Limestone County. And, a lot of what and we genealogy. Know. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of what we know about the homes and the stories around them are um, in the Lure and the Lore, which we have at the archives. We also have them available to purchase. And those purchases help the Donnell House, which maybe we should mention in the next episode. And also the historic district nomination forms. We have them uh, at the archives, but they're available online from the Department of the Interior. Those have a lot of good, just basic information about all of the homes in the Beatty District, the Houston District, the Athens College District. And so if you're looking for basic information about some of these homes and roundabout time that they were built, that's a good resource too. Unless someone like Lakin has compiled the history of a house, you're not going to find it just lying there on the 
surface, but the information is there if you want to do a little digging, isn't it, Lakin? It is, indeed. Yeah. Well, with that, let's wrap up this first episode. Uh, anything you want to add with no, this, one, I, Richard? No, this is one of the best ones. Yeah, we, we always say that, don't but know, it's always this, true. This is good. <laughs> All right, with that, we'll, we'll see you. Yes, sir. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely, and we'll see you back there in the next episode with Lake and Boyd of Homegrown History. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Homegrown History, presented by the Athens-Limestone County Public Library and the Limestone County Archives in Athens, Alabama. For more information, visit the archive website at limestonearchives.com. And to hear other recordings from our Library Voices podcast series, check out our website at alcpl.org. Library Voices is also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.